They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code INGREDIENTS20. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. Chinese influence operations in Japan. Adorably inept? Devin Stewart, senior fellow at the Carnegie Council and author of the recent report, China's Influence in Japan, Everywhere Yet Nowhere in Particular, seems to think so. In this show, we'll talk about China's tactics in Japan, what makes Japanese society uniquely resistant to the CCP's charms, and what lessons can be learned from Japan's experience inoculating themselves from CCP influence. Devin, welcome to China Talk. We, we were thinking about how do you look at the way targeted countries digest or interact with countries that are using influence operations. So you'd think given more than a 2,000-year history with so much baggage and such an intense bilateral relationship that getting people to open up in Japan, especially such a polite society, might be a challenge. I went all over Japan. I talked to 40 people over the course of two trips over two years. And getting people to open up was surprisingly easy, and they're even somewhat prideful. They have a lot of experience with dealing with China. So their attitude is basically, welcome to Japan, you, you American, you non-Japanese person. You're a beginner in dealing with China compared to us. Almost all of them were like, look, we're too smart for foreigners, especially the China, this country that we've been dealing with. And it reminded me a little bit of going to Hanoi, the sort of attitude of we've been dealing with these guys a long time <laughs> and we know a thing or two. In fact, we should teach you how to deal with them yeah. if you even need some tips in the future. And they even went so far as to go on these long soliloquies of how what a failure Chinese influence operations are in Japan. It's interesting thinking back to the sort of rise and fall of CCP, in particular influence operations, where you look at the 1930s and 40s and they're winning over like hook, line and sinker, all of these American journalists who are then able to write books and and produce reports, which convince the world that Chiang Kai-shek is the bad guy and Mao's the good guy. And he's this the future of Jeffersonian democracy in China. And throughout the 50s and, and, and 60s and into the 70s, the dynamic, like the narrative was different, but it was still a very compelling one, which is that we are the vanguard of the global revolution. And even in Japan, it had some takers of, of hard leftists who found like solace and was what was going on in China. But as the regime has evolved into something, frankly, less compelling and more certainly there are Maoist Maoist China if people knew what was going on probably would have just been just as uncompelling but the sort of what you're aspiring to if you want to be like China isn't something that necessarily from an ideological uh, perspective has a lot of appeal in in at least first world democracy so let's go through some of the some of the sorry tactics which I guess the CCP is trying. Um, let's do let's do three in one stroke. Uh, COVID, Confucius Institutes, and newspapers. What's going right. on with those efforts? COVID was happening in the background when we were writing this report that we're, where we had done all of the field work already, so we had to put some of these parts back, put it in on the fly. Yeah, the COVID aspect was what's going on there is from Japan's perspective. The influence is to put on a, a friendly face toward China. 
right? So Japan's influence toward China is to say, we're with you, we're neighbors, because the, the, the media and the, the government in China are essentially on the same page, to say the least, the media and the government, and therefore a lot of the public opinion are in sync. So the COVID case showed this. In terms of the other way around, the at the time, Shinzo Abe administration wanted to, for business reasons and for pra practical reasons, very pragmatic reasons, wanted to foster good economic ties with China. They still do mm -hmm. under Suga. The, Japan wanted to do this, what, what, what they call the tactical detente, which is to bury the hatchet between China and Japan and just say, look, let's you know grow rich together in, in a sense. But the people in the media aren't buying it. And what I found was that there is a there is a bias in Japan, and that's anti-China. And so when the newspapers are writing articles, they have an interest in Japan to they have a motive, a profit motive in Japan to write negative stories about China because people want it. So even if the government is trying to foster a good relationship, the people in the media aren't going to be uh, singing from the same page. So the COVID episode really demonstrated that while Shinzo Abe and, and Xi Jinping were doing nice gestures in an international stage and the Chinese media was playing along, back in Japan... People on Twitter or articles, op-eds, columns, just people are just like, you got to be kidding me. This is like amateur hour here. They can't, the, the Chinese can't just buy our friendship with some masks or with ventilators or something. So that was that one. That really covers media and COVID. And the third one was you mentioned Confucius Institutes, yeah. which like the calligraphy story that you had mentioned earlier is a an example of where it's again, inept or maybe old-fashioned, and I think I think it was Hu Jintao, but a, a number of Chinese officials over the years. There was a Chinese ambassador to, to Japan as well. And I think also Xi Jinping might have mentioned this too, that it's befuddlement of like, why can't our influence operations do a better job in Japan? Why aren't they sticking? Because they are being created in a, an environment of authoritarian, anti-democratic, closed society. Sure. And so the soft power element is limited for China. And in Japan, there's this built-in bias of 2,000 years of being a kind of skeptical of one another. My favorite anecdote you had from the report was a scholar talking to you about what the typical like Zhongr Yohao, like the like the friendship organization activity is. And they did a cooking demo or a calligraphy thing. But the quote was, I have been interested in these activities, but I see little Chinese soft power. It's much different from the Japan-Taiwan exchanges, which are actually fun. Um, and they have interesting events, and they show movies, and they have authors come in or whatever. Yeah. But the Chinese, like the mainland Chinese centers, are less attractive to Japanese, especially to young people. Another scholar told you that the friendship associations were, quote, useless because Chinese political warfare suffers from a, quote, unsophisticated Middle Kingdom mentality that they're dated, uninfluential, old-fashioned, and ineffective since Japanese do not want to be suckers to Chinese political influence. Yes. We're too, we're too cool. We're, we're cool. We're too cool for this. Too cool for school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, and they, they don't want to be chumps. The Japanese don't want to be chumps. And, you know, the Japanese, I'm, I know much more about Japan than I do about China. And I would say that being cool is a preoccupation in Tokyo. As most of the West, sure. we all want to be cool. And there's being, nothing remotely cool about 
They don't want to be yeah. duped. And meanwhile, it's fun. And if you've been anywhere in the world, anywhere, including America, you know that the country next door is the funniest country to make fun of. So, and Japan happens to be China. In uh, America, it happens to be Mexico and Canada. How many Mexico and Canada jokes do we have? We have a lot. Sure. We don't dislike those two countries, but they're our neighbors, so we're going to make fun of them. Yeah. That's just how it works. So there are a handful of examples of hard power, of corruption that has been exposed. Yeah, you could um, call it malign influence. Sure. Yeah. You want to walk through, who do we have? Akimoto. So Akimoto is, is great. They should make a movie about that one. It was basically, you have all the ingredients of, of an Ocean's Eleven or something. What happened was basically the minister, Akimoto, who was, had responsibilities for integrated resorts, IR, not international relations, but integrated yeah, yeah. resorts. Fancy way of saying casino. They are casinos that are dressed up to be palatable to the public. So they include aspects that are not casino. There's a hotel or a restaurant or other things to water down the gambling sure. aspect of it, <laughs> make it not so focused. Yeah. Of course, because there's pachinko parlors on every corner in every city. We, you got to draw the line somewhere. It's, My favorite it's, Asia, yeah. the other great Asia gambling story is, of course, in Singapore, where finally Lee Kuan Yew basically for 50 years said, we're not doing casinos. This is bad for the country. Right. It's not good. He finally leaves the stage and within two or three years, the subsequent prime minister is like, this is crazy. We have to do this. We're losing Chinese tourists to other places in, in, in the world. And, and this is like an opportunity we can't pass up. But the court of SOP to, to Lee Kuan Yew personally, as well as just like that mindset, is that they have a fee where you have to pay $150 if you're a Singaporean national to enter the Marina Sands basement. And there's also, it's very straightforward. If you're someone's relative, you can put a block on them and then they're never allowed to enter, which I just think is like a nice little way to make sure you're making money off the Chinese tourists while not polluting your national character or what have you with too many gambling acts. Cultural pollution, very controversial. So Akimoto was a politician and he essentially was in charge of the casinos there in Japan. And he basically took a very small bribe from a company that had an affiliation with, I think it was Jinghua Holdings. That holding company owns a majority stake of the company that um, was called 500.com. And 500.com is a Chinese gambling company that was looking for new opportunities outside of China because things were getting difficult in the domestic market. So looking for other avenues and they presented a this is why it was a bad movie because the bribe was presented to akimoto in the fashion of an old like samurai movie like an old 1970s samurai movie where it was like in a it was like a cliche when you give a bribe to someone in samurai days on the silver screen you do it underneath like cookies or cakes or something okay like a box <laughs> and so they followed that they followed that script um, so I, the Chinese watched enough yeah. Japanese movies to know that we do it under cookies. That's how it was delivered to them. And, and I, I actually found some examples from Japanese cinema to show exactly what I was talking, what they were talking about. <laughs> it was great. I, I have to say, like, it was something like $30,000, I believe, yeah. US dollars. But you have to feel bad that, geez. Speaking of low amounts of Chinese bribes, if you go through the, we were speaking before the show about the Chinese 
communist F- espionage book by, by Peter Math- Madison, Matthew Brazil wrote. And one of the striking things to me in that book is basically it's an anthology of every instance of Chinese espionage that's in the public domain. And there are a handful of these Chinese nationals in the U.S. who have been caught and they got $2,000, $3,000 for taking some camera on a plane with them, which yeah. is some night vision fancy thing. Ugh. It's really stingy. Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like the least sophisticated. It's That's right. Yeah, like the guy on the plane carrying the camera is the most straightforward right. thing to catch. Right. I'm making a bit of a, a, an illusion here and snaking around because the title of this report is Chinese Influences Everywhere and Nowhere in Particular. One of my off-the-record sort of questions to people was maybe it is here, but no one's talking about it. And I think despite people's posture and argument that it, it, the Chinese influence wasn't working very well in Japan, it's possible that there's a lot more there that we, we just don't see, yeah. which was in Japan, things are easily, things are well hidden or the Japanese are very good at hiding things. Yeah. It's again, it's almost sounds racist. It almost sounds like a racist trope, like they're a bunch of ninjas or something. Yeah. It's terrible. But the, the Japanese interviewees were telling me this, that you have to understand that in Japan, things aren't exactly what they seem. There's probably a lot of other stuff going on here. And then I'll go at the end of the interview, I'll be like, so do you think that despite all this, this nice story that you told me about, things are very clean. Maybe there's stuff happening that is not reported on, not talked about. And people will be like, maybe. <laughs> that would be the end of the conversation. Sure. <laughs> Have a nice day. Yeah. Um, so let's come to our second example, Iwatani. Iwatani is a, is a well-respected professor in Hokkaido University. And he was, in, he was invited over to Beijing to the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences doing some research. He's a historian doing some historical research. So the 2014 was, yeah. law so, in China that was very liberal, shall we, shall we say, a liberal use of how people can be charged with intelligence matters or, or collecting intelligence, basically charged as being spies. And Iwatani was there getting some historical data and charged on this invitation from CAS, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, seemed very strange that the authorities knew where he knew his whereabouts, knew what he was doing, and yet he was charged as a spy. This created a big uproar in Japan. And the uproar actually took place during my visit in December 2019 because Iwatani is like buddies with all these people in Japan who are essentially what you might call the club of Japanese scholars who are sympathetic toward China because they like the subject that they study, right? That's a thing that human pe- human beings have around the world is that when you study something, you have a little bit more, a lot of times you have a little bit more affinity toward it. You know what I mean? Sure. I'm sure there are also people who know a lot about China and Japan who aren't it's super the, fans of China. But. It doesn't always happen. Yeah. But say like, you no, know, they, there's, the, there's a whole history in the U S as well. Of like the China hands and the Japan hands, right. you know, this is, uh, um, right. what, what, what was it? Wasn't there like a funny name for it? Like the chrysanthemum something. Chrysanthemum Club. The Chrysanthemum Club. Yeah, yes. that they called like the foreign service officers in the That's 30s right. that had, didn't really have problems with um, Japanese imperialism. Right, and the famous Chrysanthemum and the Sword book. Yeah. And then Chalmers Johnson's Chrysanthemum Club, I think. I, I, think, I think that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. Is the revisionists. Anyway, 
it, it was basically their friend Iwatani who was over there in, in in China, and they felt betrayed. These Japanese scholars felt betrayed, and his arrest created a big controversy because it was like I thought we we're on good terms here with China, and this guy's one of our friends. He's on our side, and it was they wrote like a letter, a public letter, condemning China, and it was something like beyond imagination. This act against Japan is beyond our imagination. So again, it's another example of not doing a very good job of being sophisticated in, in your influence operation because mm -hmm. it backfired. And I would say that's probably one of the most the biggest themes in the report is ham-fisted, sort of stumbling around doing things that are seen as bullying and heavy-handed, and that ended up ends up backfiring or just play and in, playing into the biases of of the Japanese to begin with. Sure. It's the same with the NBA. And the NBA is a bit of a different story. We just did a show last week about it because it was much more aimed at a domestic audience of trying to rile people up about Hong Kong back when the protests were still very much uh, in force than it was about trying to thinking that shutting up Daryl Morey would improve perceptions of China in the US, which maybe someone thought that, but that would have been a huge and like really embarrassing misread. But for the stuff that's clearly directly focused on overseas influence, it's often that you see these big misunderstandings and, 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 and missteps on the part of the Confucius Institutes and the United Fronts of the world. You mentioned earlier that there are aspects of Japanese society which seem to be particularly resilient to Chinese influence operations. Maybe let's first start talking about how Japanese public opinion towards China has changed over time. My understanding is that in the after Gaga Kaifang, after reform and opening, there was actually like a big sense of guilt and of what the Japanese army did to to China in the 30s and 40s. And there was enormous Jetro was spending billions and billions of dollars and there was all of this sort of technology transfer, which like they weren't even worried about because they felt bad about it. And of course, I'm sure there was a capitalist motive to this to this investment as well. But I found it really remarkable that the the polling numbers of Japanese opinion towards Chinese pre Tiananmen Square were up in the high 70s of approval of, of just positive feelings towards China, which dropped pretty precipitously after June 4th. Maybe pick up the story there and talk a little sure. bit about how broader Japanese perception has changed. I would say Tiananmen and the Senkaku disputes in the 2000s were the two sharpest drivers of negative perception by Japanese of China. So the poll, if you were to draw a line on an av average, it was pretty much like a linear slope going down since the 70s. But basically, we have these big drops of 20 points each going in 1989 from the mid from about 70 percent favorable sentiment towards china down to 50 and then in 2009 i think we're at yes. like 40 percent favorability so there was a sort of like slow but steady decline and until the senkakus which started in 2012 and then we made it down to the 20 percent favorability a couple of people told me that it was also due to the longer you know china as a japanese person the more you dislike china which is a really hard thing to swallow so to speak like you would think that most things are the other other way around but their perspective is that chinese have betrayed the the true socialist spirit by becoming these raging capitalists and money hungry and free market and wild west 
and that the Japanese leftist socialists are more true to the tradition. Some people argue that socialism is much more thriving in Japan compared to China, hmm. and that protecting things like lifetime employment or things like universal health care or things like less competition between ruthless competition between and disruption between companies and banks and so forth less disruption in the economy more managed and i think yeah a few japanese and if you're in the academy in japan you're by definition you're probably left pretty left of center yeah. compared to the rest of the population that's actually an important point because this came up as well is that these confucius institutes are with universities where the sentiment in universities are out, out of whack with the rest of the society mm. so that japanese society is as a whole quite skeptical of china but there's a there's sort of a latent sympathy for china in japanese universities because of the this like uh nostalgia for socialism sure. interesting yeah i feel like that's an easier argument to have made 34 years ago than now let's wait till yeah some of these things i'm talking about are like dated but but people are still they're still talking about it today talk a little bit about resistance within the japanese body politic so start with first like the relative isolation and the political homogeneity of the japanese body politic and how that influences how chinese influences operations get received so this all goes back to what sometimes is called the galapagos syndrome that japan is like some kind of freaky galapagos island where it's completely separated from the rest of the world and that there are these uniquely adapted creatures living on this these four ro big rocks in the pacific and that there's not a whole lot of influence from the outside world that they've adopted their own ecosystem and so if the, if that's that kind of picture in your mind can help you think about why would such a why would a country be able to resist foreign influence or influence operations or, or malign influence one has to do with, as you said, political homogeneity and also the relative isolation of the country. In fact, Japan went through famous periods of actual complete isolation, sure. more or less. And that this, this physical isolation can be like a castle with a moat, like it's protected from outside uh, forces. And then when you get inside the castle... If everyone's singing from the same book, you might not be able to persuade them of something else. That if there's if there's not a whole lot of political competition, if there's political homogeneity, if people are are basically accepting the line of the authorities, that it's not going to be a place that's going to be a marketplace of ideas. The, the interesting thing here is that in terms of of resisting influence, Japan has both liberal virtues and liberal deficits. Mm. And the virtues are things like it's a very educated population that is well-read and they know what's going on in the world and they're sophisticated and those types of things. And they, and they have pretty high level of, of voting, for example, compared to the United States or compared to other democracies. But the deficits are the ones that are more interesting that you'd, you'd think that flaws or deficits would be flaws but they're in terms of resisting influence they're actually virtues so what are they one of them is they just don't care if you've been to japan what i'm talking about is that there is a implicit assumption that politics 
is is for other people and that we have, we have more important things to think about here our jobs our families our going out to eat getting food very sort of immediate concerns healthcare things like that but politics is a, a sort of a foregone conclusion for a lot of people in Japan and that this sort of detachment or apathy toward politics in Japan is actually a virtue if you're resisting foreign influence and a Japanese journalist actually asked me what are you talking about what, what do you mean by that and because it, 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 it strikes some people as counterintuitive but what I'm trying to say is that if, if you don't really care about something a whole lot, you might not be tuned in enough to even be persuaded of one way or another about it because you just your attention spans not there. What about the way the media is set up in Japan? How does that play into all of this? The media in Japan have been called oligopolistic. It's one way of thinking about it. It's not a if you're thinking about the newspapers and radio and the and TV. They're very big, four or five conglomerates. Sort of America circa 1960s, if the TV also owned the Washington Post and the... That's a really interesting comparison because the the act that we had, was it the Fa Fairness Act? Yeah. So the FCC introduced it in 1989 and it was eliminated in 1987. So it was, so it was introduced when? 49. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And it was uh, the title of the act? Fairness Doctrine. And that doctrine, I believe, still exists in Japan. You know, it, it, there's a, and it's still in debate right now. So Abe tried to actually revise the Fairness Act. And there is a, now a controversy in Japan about whether it's more conducive to free speech and government control of the narrative to have the Fairness Doctrine in place or not in place. Because you can make the argument either way. Actually, you could say that if the fairness doctrine is in place, uh, which it was in the United States, in, in our experience as Americans, at least for me growing up in the 70s and 80s, TV seemed pretty like balanced. At least the news seemed pretty balanced. It seemed at least less crazy and, and overly dramatized and sensational. Sure. And I guess at least the, the reputation is that Walter Cronkite and, and Dan Rather and that era of news reporting was even handed and just the facts and share both sides of the story, right? Now it's a circus. And I think the debate in Japan is whether or not it's better to keep that balance enforced or get government, get the, reduce the amount of law so that the government doesn't have uh, a say in, in what, what's considered balanced or not. You, you follow me? Sure. How does it tie back then to Chinese influence? So in general, the media environment in Japan, at least, and then, and look, I'm not I'm not talking about t Twitter. Twitter has like a big saturation. J Japan happens to be a very big Twitter country. There's Line. And there's a bunch of apps that are popular in Japan for communications and, and social media. But like the main, mainstream, like old school media is pretty protected and roughly in place. There's no foreign ownership. So lastly, let's talk a little bit about the reception that this report got in Japan. It, it was, it made a pretty big splash in Japan. It, it, it actually was on several news TV shows. So number one, Japan was, if I can, you know, speak from reading a, a great deal of media, um, coverage of this report in, in Japan. Yeah. Number one was they were saying, Hey, here's an American who cares about Japan. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Serious. And they're like, that's good. You know, 
<laughs> We're worried about so, you guys. Yeah. They're, they're basically saying the first thing we have to get out, out on the table is, is there are there is an American and there therefore there might be other ones who actually care about what's happening in Japan. And that is and this is a new thing that would this would raise eyebrows uh, or, or or how does this sort of I would say that's an old thing that's been going around for if you talk to any Japan hand, there's always like this thing. It's like any other country. When America looks and takes the time to really study something in another country and, and publish a big report, if that other country usually is gonna say Oh, it's cool that America is paying attention to us. Mm-hmm. And so even some of the headlines were like, America says, you know, China is an influence in Japan or U.S. think tank says this. Oh my God. Oh, you know, it's you so, know. it's so funny just co- contrasting this response. The most you can hope for when you write something about China is like Remin Urbao or the Global Times will write you up and say mean things and maybe you'll get a fun new epithet for your Twitter bio, but to actually have a sort of open debate about research you write as much be must be just like a very fun thing to witness through the looking glass it was actually quite surprising because it was a fairly dry topic when we launched the project and it came out right during covid and china's explosion into the imagination of americans and, and japanese it just happened to have been published right at the most explosive time it could be possibly published Another thing that the, the Japanese press was saying was, number one, here's an American who cares about Japan. Number two, this is serious, guys. You know, they're like, oh, China's trying to influence our government. Yeah. We better pay attention to this. And that this uh, report is evidence that this is a serious topic and we need to pay more attention. It's interesting just on that point because... You've had countries that have woken up to this in different ways. There's Anne-Marie Brady of New Zealand, who's a New Zealander, who wrote on this, who ended up, it became like a big national topic. And in Australia, again, it was Australians who who brought this to attention. But it's interesting that in Japan's case, the first time this became a topic of national discussion was actually a foreigner bringing it to attention. That's right. That's right. It's called gaiatsu in Japan, right? There's this idea that foreign influence has an impact on things in, in Japan. It's, it's, it's a cliche now, uh, gaiatsu. But I would say the number three thing was, three. the third point in the press was, let's take a look at these people in our government who are making these decisions and who, who are their friends and how are they making these decisions and maybe we're too soft on China and there's a lot of implied rhetoric. And it's interesting because we were, I think... We skipped this earlier in the discussion, but Japan, the Japanese public is the most anti-China public in the world. Yeah. So Pew recently, I think a few weeks ago, did a global poll of every major country in the world and looking at the, the population's attitudes towards China. And basically every country, U.S. included, had a 10 or 15 point jump in disapproval from 2019 to 2020. But Japan was was like the funniest bar on the graph. Because it was like 92% disapproval in 2019 and 93% in, in 2020. Right. So it's interesting that what goes back to your original thesis of this sort of being everywhere and nowhere, that if everyone is anti-China, it's not even a comic topic of conversation. And no one is thinking and investigating exactly what is what what is going on in the government when it comes to That's right. When it comes to these sorts of dealings. That's right. This ties back to a, a piece I want to close on, which you wrote earlier back in January, pre-COVID, entitled The Risks to the Japan-China Tactical Detente. In the subsequent year, 
a ton has happened to make that argument almost a less a less novel one than it was back in, in, in January. I'm curious where you see the potential scenarios for the relationship going over the next few years, particularly with the new government. So Suga just visited Hanoi and continued along the efforts to diversify Japanese manufacturing capacities and capabilities outside of China into other countries, in, in this case, Southeast Asia, ASEAN. This is a part of the whole story about COVID and anxieties around COVID and distrust in China and whether it's the right strategy to depend on China for your supply chain. I think what's going to happen with Suga is a continuation of Shinzo Abe's uh, approach to China, which is on one hand pragmatic, looking for opportunities, areas of possible cooperation and, and mutual benefit, but on the other hand, looking for ways to hedge and mitigate risk that China poses to Japan's society and its economy and its politics. And that's why Americans and other countries should look at Japan as a lesson for how do you handle China in the right way. I think the Japanese are right in the sense that they do have something to teach the world about how to handle China. And that way is to not go berserk, not lose your mind about China, but rather seek areas of possible cooperation and mutual benefit while also mitigating and hedging against the risk. Devin, thanks so much for coming on China Talk. Thanks a lot, man.
Walking on the street to look at the kiss I got Spoiling on my nature, not a problem with him Shocking, creepy, so easy, let me show up with me My cousins, my news, that's it, cause I'm not lost Your dream, I'm back, I'm not lost, I'm not lost I'm not lost, I'm not lost, I'm not lost, I'm not lost I'm not lost, I'm not lost, I'm not lost, I'm not lost I'm not lost, I'm not lost, I'm not lost
の喧嘩こそ立ちは前科者見てきたいろんなものシャネルに取りつかれた女の子物が溢れてる影にいいものが隠れてるどれもまがいも売れたらダサくてもいいんじゃないのやるって何マジリアルって何てかお前誰なあお前は誰クールなやつら 1% もいないんじゃない3つ数えるから泣きやめデニムでも履いてれば足が出るマジお前誰マジでお前